David Marber of Change the Padres, joined as always by Padres Jagoff. Yes, we're here. We did a podcast earlier this week, and we're back again with a, a very special guest. Yes, I am very happy to return the favor. He is the legend of the Mighty 1090 here in San Diego, Darren Smith. Darren, welcome to the Intelligence Podcast. You guys are are too kind to call me the legend of the Mighty 1090. I appreciate it, and I can only it's imagine. Ha- it's hacksaw, right? Yeah, exactly. People probably set themselves up like, what? They're getting hacksaw on? Wow, that's a great get. Oh, they just got the midday guy. That's kind of a letdown. We did get hacksaw, though. Hacksaw gave us an hour and a half. Hour he loves and a half? talking about he loves talking about old school 1090 and 690. How many questions did you guys get in with 90 minutes with the saw? I would think that that's like <laughs> one or two questions, maybe three questions tops, and the saw just took it from there. He was a good I'd guess. Say, I would say the only thing you got wrong was I, I believe you predicted the Padres to win 94 games last year, which was uh, a little bit off. <laughs> well, we were we were all off, Marver. We were. I, I had said 90, so it's not like I have much to brag about here. But, but uh, I, I do remember we kicked off the the interview, and I just I was feathering his ego and told him that I considered uh, his like 690 lineup when he when he was on when I was a, a teen or a kid. Uh, as like the golden age of sports talk radio, and that kind of set him. He went thirty-five minutes on that t- on that question. Well, he invented the whole damn format, as I'm sure he took great delight in reminding you. Can I tell you a quick recent hacksaw story before we get rolling into the the meat of whatever it is we're going to talk about? Yeah, go ahead. So I'm on the air on opening day, and we are broadcasting from the uh, the East Village block party on J Street. And as I'm there doing the show, we were on between 12 and uh, I guess 12 and 3. It was a 4 o'clock start. So we're going right up to the pregame show. And I'm in the middle of a segment talking with, I think, Buster Olney. And Hacksaw walks up and obviously knows I'm on the radio. And I even wave to him. He comes right up. He's 12, 18 inches right in front of me. And he waves at me. We fist bump a little bit. And I give him like the index finger up, like, give me a minute. You know, give me a minute. Let me wrap this up and then we'll, we'll talk. He pulls out a headshot uh, from TV6. He just pulls out a Lee Hacksaw Hamilton headshot. It's a picture of him, his mustache, his, his mop, his tie. And he puts the piece of paper down in front of me. He signs it, Hacksaw. He waves at me. And he just walked away and just <laughs> went back into the crowd and just carried on with his day like just here you go autograph picture here you go kid yeah see you later i'm i'm just gonna disappear i don't have time to wait for you to wrap up this interview i'll see you later i'm hacksaw everybody so, so is that his sense of humor or is that like <laughs> he legitimately forgot who you were I, you know i i don't know that he forgot no i mean we fist bumped and he came up and he saw the 1090 banner i think that's just his sense of humor i just think he's like you know You've interviewed him and you've listened to him forever. He's, you know, he's the mother F. We can't, can we curse on this or no? Oh, you yeah. can. Explicit on iTunes. We got that. Okay. So you're good. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's the motherfucking saw, man. You know? So like that was just such a classic hacksaw moment to just kind of come up. Here's a picture. Like I didn't, nobody asks, you know, here's a headshot, hacksaw, bang, right in front of you. <laughs> nothing just disappears and goes about his day like see you later I, there you go you're welcome yeah i mean he, he invented the genre so you know you got to give him a little deference i do uh, you know i know hacksaw you know all any kidding i've ever done with hacksaw 
you know, and obviously I don't agree with everything everybody says, and I wouldn't expect everybody to agree with everything I say, but I have the, if it's not for Hacksaw, I'm, I'm not out here. I'm not doing this. Hacksaw, Hacksaw, as somebody who grew up on the East Coast, you know, I knew who Mike and the Mad Dog were. Uh, I knew different radio stations like KMBR in San Francisco and the score in Chicago and the ticket in Dallas. And because I would watch Padre games, you know, I'd always see that extra 690 sign at Qualcomm Stadium. But I damn sure know who Lee Hacksaw Hamilton was. And that was, you know, for me, for somebody who didn't grow up in San Diego, to come here in 2003 and meet Hacksaw, like, I knew exactly who that guy was. Like, that was a really, really big treat for me. Well, I mean, I'm, I told him I'm a huge fan of his. And, you know, I, I told him, I don't know if the format works today, but I can every day thank him for what he did for sports radio and what he did in San Diego. And mm -hmm. I think he gets a bad rap among people around my age. Um, you know, some, some prominent bloggers have made a, a fun time of, of making fun of Hacksaw, but I think he's a San Diego legend and deserves some respect, you know? He's got my respect. I don't really, I, I never really understood what the chief complaint was about him. What, because he, he tapes interviews? I mean, I... That was the big thing, and, and when we ridiculous. talked to Hacksaw... I worked for yeah. ESPN Radio. Everybody tapes interviews. That is a... Con I would venture to say that 50% of what you hear on network radio is most likely taped. So that's, well, and that's just also, what happens. This is taped right now. So it's not like right. you can get on here and, and, and say anything bad about taped interviews. Right. I well, and the thing that was so it. old school about him is Hacksaw would explain, he explained to us like, you know, I taped him. Yeah, but it's theater of the mind, you know, it's radio. And he's so old school, 80s, 90s, like radio guy that, it makes sense to me, um, and I think he gets a really bad rap from, from a lot of people for that. Yeah, I agree. We also had the pleasure of having him on his debut day at TV6, so that was very exciting. Well, you guys better get a headshot. You should you should hit him <laughs> up on Twitter and tell him that you heard all about the headshots, the autographed headshots that he was passing out on opening day and that you, you would request one. Well, Jagoff took an excellent picture of Hacksaw and I where I am wearing a Padres shirt and hat and Hacksaw has on a Yankees sweater. So... <laughs> <laughs> he also did the classic pose where Marver's taller than him, so Marver's resting his elbow on uh, on Hacksaw's shoulder. Right. Actually, it seems to be a big. It seems to be a big favorite with him, combined with finger guns or a thumbs up. Right. Was he wearing a pair of shorts? I'm guessing he was wearing shorts, white socks, some sneakers. <laughs> uh, clearly. And the Yankees shirt. I'm guessing somehow, some way, was probably a freebie that he picked up along the trail. It was certainly oversized for him. <laughs> yeah. No, he's a good dude, man. He's a legend. Like you said, I, you know, the, the business changes and it's not really kind to those of us that, that get older in it. But uh, there's no doubt that that guy's that guy's past and that guy's resume speaks for itself. I can't feel too bad, though, because I, when I was doing research for the, the documentary, Darren, I went back to the early 90s and I was looking at some of the old San Diego Union Tribune cover pages around uh, what the Padres said about free agents and stuff at the time. Padres front office did. And there was one snippet I found of Hacksaw where he had signed a million dollar contract per year. And it was like 1994. Nice. Which if, if he did, if he had a good accountant and a good uh, investment person, I think he's probably doing just fine. Well, the book on Hacksaw was always that he was, uh, you know, living in a house that he had lived in for a very long time, not in an extravagant lifestyle. You know, when I got into this, 
that's what everybody said to me that that he he had the money put under his proverbial mattress. So I don't know that he spent it on wardrobe or you know, flying around <laughs> the country. So I'm guessing that Hacksaw probably did pretty well for himself. But you know what I love too is like you know, he probably made all this money because radio was so different in the '90s. You know, that's by the way not what we're making here today. But radio was so much different in the '90s that. You know, guys made all this money, and if you invested it properly, you know, you could be sitting on a really, really nice nest egg. But he still wants to work, you know, like he, he still wants to, to do something. Like he still wants to, you know, whether it's TV6 or, you know, trying to get up and running on a website, like he's, you know, giving you guys 90 minutes. Like the guy just loves it, you know, it's like, like some of us sometimes when I'm done, like I'm kind of done, I just want to go home and, you know, maybe not watch sports after sitting around a radio station all day or, you know, sometimes just get a, a mental break from it. But sports for him and like interaction with fans, it's like the oxygen he breathes, you know, like so from that standpoint, the guy like really, really loves it. Like it's really his his passion. And he's probably made so much money back in his day and his career when this business was just drunk with money. And he still is doing it. Like, I don't think he's doing it because he has to, you know, like he's doing it. At his age, like I said, it's not a kind business to those who get older. And he's still doing it because he loves it, you know? <laughs> I mean, just because it motivates him to get out of bed every day. I love that about him. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we're going to have him back on the podcast at some point. We have not had a repeat guest yet. And he would be a pretty decent candidate for that, I think. Um, but uh, let's jump into the Padres stuff. Um, Padres stuff? Yeah, okay. let's talk about the Padres. Um, I know... Darren, you didn't talk about it today on the radio, and I don't blame you. Uh, it's difficult to talk about. So I, I don't want to talk about the team right now. I actually want to go back to an interview you had a few weeks back with Jed Hoyer. Uh, Jed, for those of you listening, was the general manager of the Padres during a few of the more ad years, uh, left for the Cubs. And Darren, you interviewed him a few weeks back and asked him a couple questions, not just about how the Cubs were doing and how they structured their team, but about what his plan was for the Padres when he was here. And there was an interesting part of it. And for those of you listening, you can go to the podcast page right now and you can click on the link. I'll have a link to the original interview. Um, basically, he talked about tanking and how he thought tanking was a natural cycle in baseball. Uh, and the key thing was to be transparent with fans. And this was something that really spoke to me, really spoke to Padres Jagoff, and spoke to any Padres fan that uh, is in love with hashtag full Lunau, which is the uh, hashtag that's about tanking, named after the Houston Astros general manager, Jeff Lunau. Um, now, I, I guess my question for you, Darren, is you've watched a lot of bad baseball. You, you joined Padres yeah. Radio, I think, back in 2003. There have not been too many kind years, maybe at the beginning of your uh, tenure here, but You've seen so much bad baseball. Do you think that had 2010 started with the Padres playing poorly and not getting off to a, a, a big start, that the team would be better now? Do you think that if Jed Hoyer had gotten to go forward with his plan of tanking um, and you know that had worked out and they had drafted the correct players, do you think that they would be in a much better place than they are now? Well, I, I just think that 2010 results notwithstanding, I, I think that had Jed Hoyer stayed, that – the organization would be in a much better place than it is today because, you know, whether they won a little bit and, you know, had to cough up Corey, uh, what's the guy's name? Kluber. Uh, the pitcher with the Indians. Kluber. Thank you. Um, 
you know, I still think that they were headed in that direction. You know, it's not like 2011 produced, you know, great results. So, you know, they were still going to trade it. Adrian Gonzalez, and they still did trade Adrian Gonzalez, and they were still going to, you know, attempt to move Heath Bell and whatever other assets they had on that team because, you know, payroll was not, payroll wasn't going to start climbing up, you know, it just wasn't going to get to where it needed to be to be competitive. So, you know, I think the interesting thing with Jed was, you know, when we were talking about the Cubs, you know, we were, since you guys heard it, you know, we were, you know, was it worth it? Like, you know, was it worth the slings and arrows that you guys took tanking with the Cubs to end up where you are today? And I think that any rational person would say absolutely. And then it it sort of diverted into, well, was that your plan in San Diego? You know, and I thought it was interesting that Jed prefaced his comments by saying, well, you know, I guess I can be honest now, right? I mean, he said that as if to suggest like we had to put on this sort of PR facade at the time you know, and try to convince people that we were going to win with 37, you know, $40 million payrolls, which, you know, good luck, you know, you have to have everything go your way, you know? So I, I just think that, that Jed's, you know, Jed was, he's such a smart, such a smart guy, you know? And I think, you know, realized, and you saw his, his plan kind of play out there in Chicago, you know, maximize what you have, your assets, what you can get back for them. You know, don't pretend like you're, you know, don't grip and, and, you know, don't feel like, you know, cause you lose on a Wednesday night in June, like, Oh, you know, God, that's so terrible. You know, like have a plan, you know, he really laid it all out there, you know, and what they're doing in Chicago is, you know, as he said during the interview, exactly what his plan was here. And yeah, I mean that 2010 season, you know, it cost him Kluber, it didn't cost them much more. They didn't have a high draft pick the following year, you know, but I think the following year though, they were able to, you know, get Spangenberg or something. So, you know, I just think that his overall approach was, you know, the right one for the organization at the time, as he said, like his plan, everything he was doing was trying to, to sync up for when the TV money started rolling in, you know, which is something I really never heard anybody confess. They knew they were going to get this, this influx of cash at some point from the new television deal. So it really wasn't about what was happening in 2011, you know, or 2012 or whatever. Everything was geared up to let's make sure that we plot this course and that what we're able to do is have the players blossoming, you know, the players, big league level, the players from down below, all of that, you know, confluence together with the money that's coming in when we can start opening our window of opportunity. You know, so I, I just think that that plan, you know, whether it would have worked or not, I don't know. We're never going to know. You know, the, the players they got with the Cubs might not, you know, maybe they couldn't have gotten as good of players with the Padres as they got with the Cubs. We're never going to know. But the fact that somebody actually was planning and not just like living day to day, you know, and not just like living here in the moment, but somebody was planning for years to come. I must say, you know, for as long as I've been doing this, like that was really refreshing. Like that was really, really great to know that somebody was considering and talking and thinking and planning about and, and had a blueprint for the Padres for what not only to do in the here and the now, but how today affects next year and the year after that. Because, you know, I haven't really... I'm sure they all have plans, but I haven't, I haven't heard too much of one, 
you know, since Jen Hoyer left. I thought that that was just, I thought it was different than everybody else who's been in that position, you know, not living day to day, but actually had a plan for what he wanted to do with this franchise. Well, let me ask this. I, I think among Padres fans, Jeff Morad, you know, he's, he's considered, you know, terrible. He was terrible for yeah. the franchise. Yeah. Um, the Jed Hoyer interview made me second guess that though, in that Hoyer talked about uh, getting front office buy-in um, with the Cubs to, to lose for a while, uh, you know, take the hit and, and then reap the long-term rewards. And from listening to Hoyer, I mean, he, he said, you know, overtly and specifically that the $38 million budget that he had would probably continue for, would have continued for a few years until the TV money came in. So to me, that implicitly told me that Morad, at the very least, had bought into the Hoyer plan of rebuilding, um, you know, Adrian was going to get traded either way. Um, and to me, it seemed like um, Morad was okay with the with the short-term suffering for uh, buying into the long-term Hoyer plan. Um, right. I would say the but, main uh, difference there is uh, just that... that he had a choice. Oh, cer certainly not. I think Moyer, you know, Morad gave him, you know, an extremely small budget, but um, I don't know. I, I think the main difference is the transparency of it. Like with the Cubs, the Cubs were going out and telling their fans, look, we, we're not going to win this year. We're going to try to build for something in the future. That wasn't something you saw from the Padres. And I think people often forget this. Uh, you know, they, they assumed that my main argument, that my main crux with Padres ownership was that they were cheap. But if you actually go back to the documentary, the, the, the very first point I made was that they've lied to us. And if, it's something where if they were to come out and say, you know, the payroll is going to be low, it's going to be lower this year because of X, Y, and Z, um, because we're going to try to get a higher draft pick, because we're going to try to open up a window in the future, that's at least a plan I can latch on onto as a fan, even though I might disagree. Um, but when it's something where it, not only are they being cheap, but they're lying to you, like, it's just too many things stacked on top of one another. And I think the main thing I got out of the Hoyer interview was, yeah, that part where, um, I don't remember the exact words, but he, he basically said that they had to put on a PR facade here in San Diego. And so that was, I think that's the main difference between the two. And, I, and you know, it's something that I think the new ownership group and the new front office, uh, if they retain the same front office at the end of this year, and we can talk about that maybe a little bit more later, but I think it's something they really do have to take to heart because I don't think anyone you know, jag off me, Darren, I'm not sure if it applies to you either. I don't think any of us buy that they truly think they can compete this year. Yet they're still, you know, going out to the media and saying that. Uh, they're still doing interviews where they're saying that. Peter Seidler, the owner, is going on and saying that he hates the term rebuild. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's the chief difference between what the Cubs are doing and what um, the Padres say they were trying to do or what Jed Hoyer said he was trying to do uh, back in the day. Um so, yeah, I, I think, that, you know, as a Padres fan at this point, given the product in the field now, I don't think we have a choice. I, I don't think there's a realistic way for them to compete for the next year or two years or even three years without being very bad for a sustained period, purposefully bad, such that they can build up and, and cycle back up. And I just hope they can be transparent about it this time around. You know, I think going back to, I'm sorry to, to interrupt, but going back to Morad, you know, I don't know how transparent he could have been given that he still wasn't even voted into the club by the owners, you know? So if this guy 
you know, if Jed Hoyer has a plan and Morad says, listen, this is what the budget's going to be. Can you figure out a plan for us based on this? And Hoyer goes, yes, okay, fine. You know, there will be some light at the end of the tunnel. I, you know, I think Hoyer got a lot of his inspiration for that plan by being in the AL East and by seeing what the Tampa Bay Devil Rays did for all of those years. You know, when I first got turned on to the idea of tanking and, and became a believer or full Lunau, as you guys have said, was reading Jonah Carey's book about the Tampa Bay Rays. And I'm guessing you guys have probably read it or at least heard about it. Yep. And Hoyer is quoted in that book. And so when I was doing weekly segments with Jed, I found, you know, I, I got the book. We had Jonah Carey on the show. And so I, I loved it. I thought the book was really great. And I said, wow, you know, this, this is something here that the Padres should do. So like light bulb on... Because for most of my life, I lived under this idea that, you know, no, no, like sports, like you got to go for it. Like you got to go for it all the time, you know? And that book totally had me do an about face. And when I saw that Hoyer was quoted in it as an executive with the Red Sox and Hoyer was like, wow, you know, I'm paraphrasing what he said. Like they were so committed to what they were doing. They were so disciplined in what they did in picking up all these draft picks. And if they got their asses kicked for a couple of years, well, you know, at least they had a strategy. And I remember calling them and I, you know, I never told the story. So you guys, you, you're getting the exclusive. You know, I, we did our weekly spot and I said, hey, Jed, you know, I'm reading this book about the Rays, the Devil Rays or whatever they were. And, you know, you're quoted in it. I said, is this your approach with the Padres? Then he kind of hemmed and hawed inside, set the question. And you know, then we talked about whatever was going on with the Padres at the time. And uh, he texted me as soon as we were done with the interview and texted. And he's like, hey, nice find, like nice find in that Jonah Carey book. <laughs> like, you know, like as if to say, like, shit, how did you find that? Like, I, I didn't expect to be called out about that. But, he, you know, so that was all the acknowledgement that I really needed, that that was his approach at the time. You know, I just think that Morad was still, you know, there were all these crazy rumors that he purchased the team on a credit card and he was underfunded and other owners around the league hated his guts, which we found out was true. And, you know, that he was he was like actively searching for investors, you know, investors all across San Diego County, even in like hitting up employees, parents for money. So there was all this crazy stuff lying around about Morad. So I don't know that he could have come out and said like, you know, this is what we're going to do because everybody would have would have recognized him as the fraud he turned out to be. But, you know, that was it with Jed. Like, I think Jed kind of said, all right, you know, I saw this happen in the AL East with the Devil Rays. And now look at them. You know, it was about the time they had gone to the World Series. They were a playoff contender. You know, they were like the apple in the, of everybody's eye. And the fact that I just found that quote somewhere in there. I don't even know why Kerry interviewed him. Why Jonah Kerry interviewed him. You know, and I'll just never forget, like saying, like, is this your approach? And he goes, well, you know, the Rays, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's very masterful at that. He's good with media. And afterwards, like we weren't done with the segment, like two minutes later, nice find in the book and the text <laughs> message. And I kind of just said, all right, you know, like I get it. Like I, I kind of get what he's about here. You know, so it was cool that he said that on the show a couple of weeks ago. Do you think that he left because of the money or do you think there was more to it than just that? I mean, it, it we didn't get very much as Padres fans as to why he left. We got an excuse that, oh, we've got Josh Burns left, but, you know, why not have Josh Burns and Jed Hoyer? Like, it, did, it didn't seem to make too much sense. Do you think it was an opportunity thing, a money thing? Like, like why did he leave? Um, well, 
I, I mean, I think the opportunity was enticing. You know, the opportunity also to go back and work with Theo was was probably enticing. You know, and I think he also probably read the tea leaves and knew that, you know, he, he asked Jeff Morad for an extension and was sincere and said, like, if you, you know, you have Josh Burns here. It is not a secret that you, Jeff Morad, have this affinity for Josh Burns. You know, Tom Krasovic of the Union Tribune used to refer to Josh Burns as the son of Morad, if you guys remember. Yeah. So, you know, that was there. Like, you know, this is like, like an, a bit of an uncomfortable structure. You know, Jed was the GM and then, you know, Hoyer comes, uh, excuse me, Jed was the GM and, and then Burns comes in and then like AJ Hinch comes in or AJ came in first and, you know, AJ was, was, was hired by Jed and then Burns comes in. So it's like, you know, is that any way to live? Like, is that any way to be the GM, you know, in a fickle business, knowing full well that even though Morad hired you and gave you this opportunity, that Josh is here in the office the whole time. So, you know, I tend to think it was it was about the opportunity. Like it was just, a, a you know, an opportunity to kind of, who knew where the Padres were going? Like, who knew what was going to happen? You know, was Jeff even, was Morad even going to last, you know? So then what kind of job security is that? So I think Jed did the best he could to, to secure himself some job security with the Padres. And when he couldn't get it, you know, and Morad wouldn't give it to him, I think Jed probably said like, hey, the writing's on the wall here. You know, I, I, I don't know what's happening with this franchise. I don't know if this guy's even going to be approved as the owner. Burns is here. And not that those two, you know, don't have a good relationship. But Burns's relationship with Morad was considered to be the plum relationship of the front office, you know. And I think Jed probably just said, "Hey, I need to make a decision here. You know, I'm I'm married. I, I you know I got got a child on the way. Like I, you know, I, I got to think about myself. You know, and I've asked Jed on and off the air. Like I, I think that Jed really." wanted to be the general manager of the Padres for a really long time and expressed that internally. And given the really kooky circumstances here at the time with ownership and, and all these, you know, the diamond back hole front office coming through the front door started to feel like, Hey, you know, I, you know, I, I need to feel secure here. And when it wasn't happening for him, I think it just, the writing was on the wall and, and it was, obvious to him that he should go to Chicago, you know, that that was just a better opportunity to go back and reunite with Theo and take that thing over rather than all of the uncertainty from ownership all the way down in San Diego. Well, I'd like to retract the nice things I said about Jeff Morad four minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Morad is a, uh, Morad those are the dark, dark ages, boy. Those are the dark ages here. The, the, Morad was a dickhead. The benefit of the uh, podcast Potter's Drag Off is that you can go edit that out before you send it to me. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave it knows. in. I also forgot about that. I think I've talked on the podcast how I, I had tickets to the Lexus Premier Club and he blew me off in the Premier Club, which which angered me quite a bit. So, Well, you know, he, he's got a million stories around town of, you know, people who he annoyed around that ballpark. So, you know, you weren't the only one, but you're 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 in good company. There were a lot of them. So shifting gears a little bit, we just we just talked about Jed Hoyer, who was one front office member um, in recent memory. The Padres have had very like, a lot of them since you've 
uh, been here. They've gone through Sandy Alderson and all those guys, Paul D. Podestan and whatnot. Uh, obviously, there was Garfinkel and Morad and Burns and Hoyer. Now we have this Fowler, Seidler, D. Partello sort of, you know, four-headed monster. How does this group compare, um, not just in terms of, like, organizational philosophy and, you know, baseball ops and stuff, but just in terms of how they interact with the media and stuff? Like, what, what, is, what is different about this group than the previous ones? Well, um, how they interact with the media, that's an interesting, interesting question. Uh, I don't... Well, and because I think Alderson was very open with you yeah. back in the day. Uh, you I guys know. openly sparred. It wasn't, um, it wasn't PR driven, I think, on his part. And for me, the listener, it was always interesting to hear that kind of clash. Um, yeah, and obviously, I'm for not... as much as I disliked Garfinkel too, I mean, at least that was like, there was some open openness in, in dialogue. You could meet with him, uh, whether it was at a game or in his front office. Paul D. Podesta even had a blog at one point where he talked about players right. and you could even a comment and he'd comment back. It was it was it was great, um, especially given the times because that was you know prior to Twitter and stuff where you could instantly get a response from someone. Um. Yeah, no, I, I mean there are differences today. There's no doubt. Um, it you know I'm I'm it's cool of you to say that about Alderson because it always bugs me when people think that, and I can't speak for Sandy, but. It always bugs me when people think that he and I just hated one another because that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you know, I, I've maintained casual contact with Sandy throughout the years since he's since he left. So, you know, that that's kind of cool. Um, you know, it's it's a different day and age, but it's it's not just different with the Padres. It's different with the Chargers. You know, everybody's got their in-house media now. Everybody's got you know their own incentive to promote their own dot coms. You know, when, when Mike and Wayne, when D and Partello came in here, you know, they didn't really make it a secret and, and we've, I've discussed this on the air. So it's not like I'm saying anything that I haven't said on a 50,000 watt radio station, but their directive and change of media approach was obvious from day one. They wanted to keep everything in house. They want to run everything through dot com. They want to, you know, back in the day, as the broadcast partner of the Padres, if they were doing something like calling up a prospect or making a trade or putting somebody on the DL, like we would get a heads up. It was kind of a common courtesy. You know, we were their business partner. We were their broadcast partner. So somebody, you know, would let us know or keep us in the loop. If they had a press conference to introduce a new player, they would work with us and say, you know, if we put the press conference at 12 o'clock, can you guys carry it live? And that's different with this regime. But that's different in my business as a whole. I don't want to make it sound like the Padres are the only ones who are, are changing their approach to media. You know, first time I noticed it was when the Padres signed Josh Johnson. You know, and it sounds silly in hindsight, but at the time, and, and you guys would know this, I think Josh Johnson was the highest free agent signing in franchise history, correct? Uh, um, I think Odog is actually still the highest one. Well, no. Okay. It's now James Shields. 
but right. But, but at the yeah, time, but at the time, it, yeah. I think like he was up there. You know, he was one of the biggest free agents. Like it was like nine million bucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, again, I know, I know, I know. But you know, that was kind of a big deal. And you know, I'm just using this as an example, not to suggest that you know, my God, the relationship soured in this moment. But we weren't really consulted on the press conference. And I, I would venture to say as the flagship for the Padres, we might have, we would have considered carrying that. I'm not the program director, but I've worked at the station since 03. Like we would have considered covering that or carrying that live on the mighty 1090. But we weren't really given the choice and the signing was announced and it was streamed at Padres.com or whatever. And it was just different, you know, like it was just a different day. It was just a different day in the relationship between our radio station and their team. Again, good, bad, whatever. And that's the first time I really noticed it because we weren't given that opportunity. And they ran it at 10 o'clock in the morning, which is right in the middle of the Jim Rome show. So I'm sitting there at the show preparing and I have Padre fans going, hey, you guys are a terrible flagship. You guys, what kind of flagship are you? How come you're not carrying the press conference? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, this isn't us. This wasn't our decision. You know, this is something that the Padres just wanted to carry in-house. You know, this is something that they wanted to do. You're yelling at the wrong guy. Like, you know, I'm not just defending our station here. This is a new day and age. And they flat out told us, you know, their management told our management, you know, that that everything was going to be handled in-house. Most of the stories were going to break as as best as they could control them from inside of their own organization. So that's that's their prerogative. That's the big difference with this group. You know, it seems like they are um, much more determined to, you know, have everything, to manage everything. You know, to be their own media, uh, to be you know their own uh, breaking news outlet than any of the previous regimes that I've worked with, where there was much more of a two-way street dealing with us and keeping us in the loop on stuff. Yeah, and do you, are they able to? And you guys are—I mean, you're the flagship. Um, you guys have a, you know a Padres Wednesday. Uh, promotion where where you have the various Padres employees on the radio. Um, do they? Um, is it the radio station's choice who interviews who, or is it a front office decision driving their communication strategy? I believe those decisions are made by. Well, it's probably mutual, but I I believe that the decisions are probably made ultimately by the Padres. Um, you know, I, because they're, they're making the availability. I didn't have any say, you know, I didn't have any say I'm glad that, that I have Andy green on the show, but I didn't have any say in that. Nobody asked me what I preferred. So, you know, that's different also, you know, the, uh, two years ago, um, you know, two years ago, Josh Burns reached out and said, listen, you know, I'd like to be on your show on a weekly basis. Does that work for you? And I said, yeah, like, you know, I'd love to have you. I enjoy talking to Josh, you know, people, whatever people think of him as a general manager is fine, but that was something where it was somewhat worked out. I was involved in that. And I, I really, I haven't been involved in the decision for who appears on my show since, you know, in terms of 
the things that are mandated, the things that happen on a weekly basis, to your point, something like a Padres Wednesday, I, you know, we, we put in requests for players, you know, that's different. You know, we put in requests for like Darren Balsley, you know, that, that's a different thing. But in terms of the sort of weekly features, the weekly regulars, you know, I, I haven't really, I haven't had much say in that since, um, since Josh Burns was on. So, I, Darren, I recently moved to Philly back in September, um, recently moved to Delaware again, but still greater Philly area. You know, one of the main things here that I've noticed that's very different from San Diego, because I've really only known San Diego and, and I guess Santa Barbara for college, is that there are so many different competing radio stations here. Um, I mean, just off the top of my head, I can name five <laughs> that I have saved on my radio dial that are, you know, popular shows to get big guests. They come on, whatever. In San Diego, we really have... I, I want to say one and a half. I mean, we have obviously 1090, uh, and then there's also 1360, but I, I, that's much smaller. Um, so, you know, it's a lot easier for the Padres to control the message, right? I mean, there's not that many outlets that get a lot of listeners that can criticize the team without losing their ability to get big guests. Whereas in Philly, you know, I will listen to a radio host have on the general manager of the Sixers, and as soon as he's off the line, rip him for 20 minutes. Um, mm. And, you know, Padres Jagoff uh, likes to call this, and I totally agree, that right now is the golden age of Padres podcasts. There are so many of them out there. There's also um, a 1090-sponsored one. Uh, there's just so many of them. Do you think at all that this is a, an organic reaction to the fact that, honestly, the Padres pretty much control the message in San Diego about the Padres, whether that's through uh, the Padres Social Hour, where everyone who comes on is essentially, you know, a paid employee – um, that they get to pick and choose, I guess, now who, which radio shows they get to go on. There's really only one media outlet via newspaper as well. Um, do you think that this is a fan reaction to the fact that there's just not that much independent Padres coverage anymore? Well, and, and on that, I, I'm writing something now on it, but like you said, with, with Social Hour, for instance, all of the guest hosts on there are, are paid and they're drawing money from, from the club that they're, that they're covering. And it goes beyond that. There's all kinds of financial ties to, uh, you know, MLB Advanced Media mm -hmm. or uh, Padres.com or, um, you know, I, I don't even know if, if 1090 is flagship, if the team has some editorial opinions on on things that are said on the radio. There are so many financial relationships that the, the Padres have created among those that cover them. Uh, I mean, I'm writing an article where basically I'm trying to – I'm trying to rate how corrupted each media member is in relation to the Padres based on whether they're drawing a direct paycheck, whether they're drawing an infrequent stipend from them. And it's difficult because they own so much. And I I lived in D.C. for 10 years after college, and I've seen what Dan Snyder did out there, and he's vilified. But he's also ingenious in how he took over the media message by not trying to sway the media onto his side, but by literally buying the media. And the Padres own a TV station. They, you know, um, all kinds of self-produced programming now. And um, to me, the podcasts that have arisen are, are a real reaction to that because there are very few places to go where you get an honest message. And even on the radio, the guests, you know, Mark Grant, great guy, love listening to him, but he's, he's drawing a paycheck from the team. Um, so it's hard for fans, and I think, you know, fans, listeners, whatever, to, to differentiate between team employees passing along a PR message 
versus honest opinion or honest analysis of what's going on. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. You know, and I think that I don't want to get on my show every single day and call out people who are employees of the team on either side of town, by the way, baseball or football. I know that this is, you know, the intelligence Padres most, you know, I, I understand. No, no, what Dean Spanos sucks too. It's okay. Yeah, but like they well, you know, and Dean Spanos is a was a turning point when he went on Chargers.com right. for that for that that terrible interview. I think that's what opened up the eyes of not just Chargers fans but Padres fans that the teams themselves were controlling the message and owning the message. Right. And but you know, that's that's the one thing and I'm you know, I'm I'm glad that people notice it because you know, my biggest fear is somebody who is not paid by a team, not yet. I mean, <laughs> maybe someday I'm open to negotiation. But <laughs> As somebody you know who's not paid by a team and who honestly, guys, and I'm being very 100% transparent with you guys, I have never been told what to say or what not to say about the Padres, not from this regime, not from a previous regime. One time I, I heard a story that John Morris complained and you know called me a, a, an asshole to, to my <laughs> boss, and that's fine, you know, but um, that said, I'm I'm glad that people noticed that because you know my my biggest fear is that I I still do believe in traditional media, and I don't begrudge new age media. I don't begrudge. Obviously, I'm I'm here on this podcast, so I I believe in what it is that you guys are doing. I hated it when people like stuffy newspaper writers just look down their noses and try the shit all over sports talk radio. You know, I, I hated that. I hate when people attack television hosts as nothing but talking heads. You know, I, I, I believe in a free press, a free media. So I'm glad people noticed that, that these guys are not like reporters. You know what I mean? Like they call them reporters, but they're not reporters. You're, you're not a reporter. You are, in essence, you know, part of the house organ. You, that's what they get paid to do. You know, they get paid to put a shine on stuff. And I hope people realize that. I don't want to spend the rest of my life yelling and screaming and saying, well, those guys who work for Chargers.com or those guys who work for Padres.com or those people who are part of the content team, my, my hope is that people are smart enough to know the difference, you know, that those guys aren't reporters. Like, those guys aren't real reporters. Those guys are paid employees of the teams that they work for. You know, you brought up what's going on in Washington. Dan Snyder buys a radio station. Dan Snyder buys a Redskins, rides the newspaper. Well, what kind of coverage do you think the Redskins are going to get? You know, Tony Kornheiser works for one of those radio stations. And Tony Kornheiser has told his guests, like, you cannot come on this show and you cannot rip Dan Snyder. Like, he, he owns this radio station. So, you know, we all, to a certain extent, have to make our deals with whatever devils we're involved with. So I, I'm glad that if that's what's happening here, if, if the action is we're going to try to control the media and cut out access to newspaper writers and cut out access to unbiased reporters, and we're going to try to you know, borderline trick people by having our own in-house PR masquerading as reporters, I'm glad that the reaction then is that you have this golden era of podcasts. You know, I'm glad that, that that sort of stuff is popping up. Because I would hate to consider the alternative. I would hate to think that what's happening with the masses and with fan bases here in San Diego and all across the country is that people are just being duped by these these phonies, these people who are masquerading as reporters. And I, I don't mean to call them phonies like they're bad people. They have jobs to do. They get paid. 
they have families, they have mortgages. So I, I don't begrudge them. I just kind of begrudge the illusion that people think that they're they're members of the media, like we're all members of the media. That's what social media is. But they're not press media. They're not real reporters. And I hope I really, really hope people are smart enough to understand that. Well, I think it's mixed. I, I definitely I think I was driving to work last season and uh, Cilio was on and he had a caller on that complained about why the media was so soft on the Padres and then called out specifically uh, Corey Brock and Bill Center wondering why they weren't ripping the team. And right. So, you know, I, I think I'm tough on Bill Center on, on, on Twitter, but I understand what he's doing. I mean, you know, he, he's paid by the team. It's a yeah. job. Um, his job is to, um, you know, transmit positivity about the team. Yes. Wayne Partello said that that's the goal of their communication strategy is to, to transmit positivity, to call back to positive moments. And that's fine as a PR strategy. I'm well familiar with the business world with that. Um, I just hope that fans and I think people that read, you know, my Twitter, Marvers Twitter, our blog, a lot of blogs and podcasts realize that. And it's actually refreshing. I hear, um, Craig Elston on on make the Padres great again. He he regularly and and this is what what the turning point this year is is people like uh, and again no harsh feelings towards them but Mike Janella uh, AJ Casavell they're all indirectly tied to the to the ownership group for Major League Baseball to mm-hmm. provide a PR service to them and Elston is very open in calling them team employees and I think that's something I see very frequently on Twitter this year is those people explicitly called team employees, which I think is positive for getting, I mean, to me, it's positive in defeating the, the, the team strategy of whitewashing reality, but I think it's also a positive in, in just the critical thinking that, that fans are showing. I also think it helps them. You know, I also think it, it lowers the expectation on those team employees that they will not just launch, you know, that they are not going to launch attacks on whatever team it is that they work for, be it the Padres or anybody else. I think it actually helps them. And in my opinion, at least it takes them off the hook. I don't have any expectation that um, the dude from Social Hour is going to attack Mike D or AJ Preller. You know, if this ominous start to the season continues, I'm not going to tune into that show and expect that that guy is going to just start ripping up Prowler and saying that he's incompetent to be a general manager. So I think it actually helps them and it excuses them, except for that guy that calls silly show and doesn't understand (laughs) the difference, you know? So I I think that's actually a good thing for them. You know, the only time where, where I ever get frustrated with any of them, any of those guys who have taken those jobs. And again, I don't know. I might take that, that job somewhere down the road. Maybe they're going to squeeze the life out of press media. And it'll be the golden age of uh, golden age of podcasts, and it'll be team employees, and that'll be the only media we have in life. But the only time I, I ever get frustrated is when they go beyond putting a positive spin, and when they become combative, you know. And you just kind of say, like, where? What do you? You know, who are you to be combative? Last year at the trade deadline. I mean, seriously, it was all across baseball. Everybody knew that the Padres at least were giving the impression that they were open for business on the trade market. 
that stuff was out there. So then they go and, you know, for, for team employees, guys to say, well, you know, the national media got it wrong and they're so upset. Like, no, like there was, there was plenty of reason to suggest that the Padres were on the verge of trading Justin Upton or, you know, Tyson Ross or Craig Kimbrell or, you know, pick your player that may have been discussed at the time uh, because other guys on other teams told me they were talking to the Padres. So like, I know it, you know, and it wasn't as simple as, well, you guys all got it wrong. Therefore you're angry now with the Padres. I think when they, when they go beyond, you know, brightening up the message and then it turns into like being defensive and combative and argumentative. I think that that's the only time I ever really, kind of get frustrated with those guys who are the, the team employees. But I guess I also understand it. You want to, you know, you want to keep your employment status secure as long as you can. Like who doesn't, that's everybody's incentive in life. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to come here and blast my boss, you know, uh, I want to keep getting a paycheck. So, right. You know, but there's, you know, I also think that there's a nuanced way of doing that where, you know, you, you don't have to lose credibility in the process. Yeah. There's, no. there's, there's a difference between like, being neutral and, and not saying anything negative, you know, and I think this is something Padres Jagoff and I talked about on the last podcast, you know, Jesse Agler is now one of the uh, main broadcasters for them. He did a good job on Padres social hour last year of, he was never overly Homer, but, but he never blasted the team either. It was somewhat of a neutral host asked questions. He got Homer answers, but he wasn't being argumentative. It wasn't being a Homer uh, on the front. He's of savvy. He, I mean, he's a savvy broadcaster. He's very experienced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, a, big, a big difference between that and between, you know, I'm just going to use this as an example. Ted Leitner today, uh, after the game, said, you know, uh, we faced some tough Phillies pitching this week. It's like, well, I mean, they're tanking. Yeah, they faced some decent pieces, but that's, you know, that's not really what happened. Um, so I think, you know, there's a, a big difference between those two points of view that, um, I think casual Padres fans and even, you know, obviously the, I think the bigger Padres fans have caught on to it for a while now, but even the Padres fans that only pay attention half the time or a third of the time, they're catching on to this now. And uh, it's really refreshing for me to see, especially given where we were just three years ago. So um, I'm hoping that continues. By the way, speaking of that Philly series, you know, you saw both ends of that tanking philosophy. As I was thinking about it, watching the game on uh, on Wednesday, I guess it would Thursday uh, with Velasquez, right? He was part of the Astros last year, correct? Yeah. And so think about both ends of the tanking spectrum there. So Philadelphia decides they have no need for an expensive bullpen arm, so they trade Giles to Houston so they can get younger, so they can get depth, so they can get, you know, a handful of players back in exchange and then the flip side is houston tanked built up their reserves had a surplus and was able to trade players away including the pitcher velasquez who shut down the padres and struck out 16 like that's both ends you know like tanking isn't just all right get rid of giles so you can get you know mark appel and velasquez through the doors and the other players that they got tanking is also that's a 2010 second round draft pick so houston feels like hey we need a bullpen arm how did we lose in the postseason let's go get giles whether it works or not you know who knows but we can afford to move some of these pieces including the second round draft pick included in this guy who throws in the mid 90s 
I thought that game not only made the case from Philadelphia's standpoint, but also from Houston's standpoint in terms of how much depth they must have. But anyway, that was a quick aside to what we were discussing. No, but I mean, I, I went to the game on Wednesday, and I, I will tell you, the atmosphere of the game, they knew their team was not going to win the World Series this year because the front office has communicated to the fans that, look, we're not going to be good. We're going to play young players, and anyone else of value we're going to get rid of that isn't a long-term piece. And if you look at the roster, that's exactly what they have. I mean, they have two veterans in their starting lineup in Ryan Howard and Carlos Ruiz, but they're both overpaid guys that don't have a lot of value going for them. It, it's not like they have a Derek Norris or Andrew Kashner who does have short-term value on their roster when in a season where they're not going to compete. And it, it's something where, you know, you go to the game, you're expecting it to be somewhat of a close match because it's two teams that, quite frankly, aren't very good. But you see two very different points in where they are as a franchise. Mm-hmm. I think Philly has somewhat of an advantage because the Sixers have been doing it for so long uh, that the, the, the fans here at least respect the, quote, process. Um, but no, I think you're, you're, you're totally right. I think what happened to the Padres this series was they played a team that has a bunch of young talent because they were willing to admit they weren't very good. And, it, you know, it takes sometimes it takes a big person to admit when they're wrong and, uh, you know, commit to a different plan that isn't, you know, what the Potters are doing. I'm trying yep. to think of a better way of framing that. But um, no, I, 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 I totally agree. Yeah. And like I said, I, I really think the Houston side of it is interesting too, you know, because their window of opportunity is open. You know, people always think, you, you know, anytime I talk about a farm system on the radio, oh, we've been rebuilding since 1969. Don't you, you don't get it. You don't understand it. And I go, no, no, no. Like at some point, like your farm system isn't just there to produce major league players for your team. You know, it's also there to help your major league team when you have good players or players that other teams want to help you if your window of opportunity is open. Like, you know, it's not just about every single player doesn't have to be homegrown. You know, you can sprinkle in a free agent or an international signee, or you can use some of those players like this Velasquez guy, or you can, you can use those guys and trade them away and bring back players who you need right now this year in order to go further than you did a year ago. You saw just both, both ends of that on display, you know, making the case for tanking, which I've been trying to do for six years. And, and actually you made a, a point there that I kind of want to combat, not, not your point, but just Padres fans saying the team has rebuilt for so long. I don't think the Padres have actually ever properly rebuilt. No. Um, I mean, they took Matt Butts. For the- uh, other, other than the fire sale. The fire sale That's is true. actually the one rebuilding. I was too young to appreciate <laughs> right. that. I was six years old, so I, I didn't truly appreciate that. But, I mean, just in my lifetime, they've never really properly rebuilt. They've had the first pick. They've spent it on the wrong player. They had five draft picks in multiple drafts, and they picked, they spent it on safe players or didn't sign all the players. And this was back when drafts, uh, the draft bonus pool was not capped. So they could have, with those five first-round picks in 2012 or – Five first-round picks, I think it was in 2009. They could have taken the five best players and paid them all and properly rebuilt their team, but they've never actually truly committed and done that, let alone spent in international signings. We'll see if they do that this year. So it's something where, you know, Padres fans will complain about it, but I sit back and I say, well, we've never actually really done it the way we're now proposing to do it. Um, and it's a subtle argument you have to make, but, I mean, it's something that I'm going to continue to make, and I think Padres jack off and other people on the full now 
uh, bandwagon will continue to push that we've never actually done it this way. Um, and other teams have done it this way and it's worked. And so I hope, um, you know, it's, it's nice having you Darren on the, on the same ship as us. And, um, hopefully that'll happen at some point in my life because I'm now 28 and I'm starting to question whether this team will ever win in my lifetime. And I'm 28. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I, I don't, I don't think that the people that are in place there, I don't think they subscribe to it. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I've been told I've never asked them directly. So it's probably a little unfair, but I've been told that AJ Preller kind of looks down his nose at the strategy. You know, he would rather have the challenge of trying to, you know, stock up and the waves of talent that we've all heard now, which always to me sounded like a Tim Flannery song, waves of talent. (laughs) And the owner has already been out there, you know, the, and Peter Seiler has been saying like, you know, he doesn't, and he's told me privately, you know, like, I, I, I think you're wrong. He told me he thought I was wrong. And I said, okay, you know, I, that's fine. You know, but I've been saying the same thing since before Peter Seiler got here. So it's not like I've just directed this at the current ownership group. You know, I, like I said, it goes way back to like 2009, 2010 when Jed Hoyer was around and reading Jonah Carey's book. So I don't know that they will, I don't know what it'll take to convince them. You know, I, I had wondered to myself, does Preller, would Preller want to do that? Would Preller want to go full now? And you know, if what I've heard is correct, he, he didn't really think all that highly of what the Cubs did or what the Astros did. So um, I wouldn't hold my breath that that's happening anytime soon, at least as, as long as the current regime is the current regime. Well, if the current pace keeps up and they get shut out 81 times, maybe they'll open their eyes. Maybe it wouldn't, they're, which they're on pace for, right? Great start. What an ominous start, you know, and <laughs> that's the crazy thing for me. You know, the crazy thing is you know, we were talking about transparency a little while ago. And I think it's fair to wonder, like, are they just saying that they're not rebuilding? Like, like, are they actually trying? Like, do they think that this team is going to win? Right. And maybe they'll get the last laugh on all of us, but I don't see like, I don't know any, nobody sees it. And sometimes even listening to them, it doesn't sound like their hearts are into it. I've heard Ron Fowler on the radio. It doesn't sound like his heart is into thinking that this team is going to get across the finish line as a playoff team. And, and even some of their comments seem to suggest Peter Seidler, like, you know, their whole blueprint is, hey, you never no, you know, maybe something will happen. Hey, we'll see what happens. Maybe September will be a surprise to all of us. But well, Fowler's I mean, actually downgraded. I, I, yeah, I kind of downgraded his expectations. Yeah, I kind of get the sense, like you know, that they're not trying to snow everybody here, but like that, for whatever reason, they are kind of committed to this approach into believing that that somehow by some miracle this could turn into something that is competitive and, you know, perhaps approaching a playoff spot at the end of the year, which, you know, what are you going to say at the end of the year if it's another 74 wins season and you're telling everybody that you tried, you know, like, like, I mean, if they get 74 wins, I would say, thank God at this point. Yeah. Well, that would be the best case scenario for this team right now. There's nothing real worse than though. I ended up with another, you know, ninth or 10th pick in the draft. 
So, you know, from that standpoint, I, I don't know that that is great. You know, you don't, you don't want to ride in the middle too long. You know, you just don't want to be in the middle too long. You kind of want to go one direction or the other here. And since it doesn't appear like they're going in the direction towards winning at the big league level, I, I hope the light bulb goes off and they go in the other direction. But uh, I just don't know that they're wired that way, fellas. I just, I just don't think it's part of their DNA, as they said. So I've got a – I think we're, we're probably ready to, to wrap up. I've got three really quick questions that don't need long answers. Sure. Um, so one, you kind of touched on in saying, what if they finish with 74 wins again? And to me, it's Mike D, uh, who has at least publicly driven the narrative that they are building, that they were going to compete for the playoffs – and as president and CEO, I believe he sets the the expectations publicly. So, would what would it take theoretically for him to be held accountable and for Mike D to, to get fired? Uh, my second question: um, There's there's some con- conspiracy theories that uh, Fowler is only a placeholder, uh, that he was granted some years of being executive chairman for for being the public face of the team as a San Diegan, and that Seidler would eventually take over. Uh, is there any merit to that conspiracy theory? And my third question is, you had a legendary interview with uh, Pat Murphy, his farewell interview. <laughs> um, was that the most honest, uh, non-PR-driven interview that you've ever had with a team employee? In that he was, he was, to me, totally honest at that point. He had nothing to lose. He knew he was getting canned next week. Um it was just brutally honest and it was amazing radio for, for listeners. So, uh, I'll close with those three. All right. Uh, well, thank you for saying that. What would it take for, for Mike to get fired? I believe was the first one. Um, they're out of people to fire, aren't they? I mean, they've two years ago, they fired the GM last year. They fired the manager. They got rid of the replacement manager. They bragged and boast and, through the Union Tribune about this is the group we want. We've got the owner, the CEO, we've got the GM, now we've got the manager. You guys have pointed this out. You know, this is what year four of ownership. Um, to me, there's nobody else to blame at this point. You know, you you can't you can't be a CEO and not make any progress. And, and in my opinion keeps status quo. So I think that this is a year that is all about Mike D because I don't think you can fire the ownership group. So I've said that on the radio, you know, the two years ago, it was Josh last year. It was buddy this year. There's, there's nobody left to blame, you know, and whether he's as involved in baseball operations as he used to be, or whether he's throttled back on that. And I've heard he, he has throttled back from baseball operations. You know, this is, this is still what he has put together, and he has been heavily involved in the decision making. So at some point, you have to figure out: is this working? Is this getting better? Is this a better franchise today than it used to be? And in some areas, you probably could say yes. Um, whether you want to give him the credit for the All Star Game, you know, the video board stuff was happening anyway, but he was in charge, so. Um, I tend to think that you keep hearing a little bit about, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe things aren't so great internally with Mike. So I, I would tend to think that, you know, if, if this is heading in the same direction that it's headed for the first 10 games, 
I think that that's a very, very fair question to ask. And I certainly would think that that is something to pay attention to as the season goes on, especially after the All-Star game. The uh, second question, I believe, was on Fowler. The rumor I always heard was if there was a five-year plan with Fowler, which would mean at the end of 2017. Maybe that's why you're starting to see a little bit more of Peter Seidler. You know, Peter Seidler, who's you know, dealt with some health stuff, which I think prevented him from really being out there last year. I think that's probably why he's becoming a little bit more vocal. You know, maybe, you know, Ron has said it like, Hey, I, you know, I don't have forever. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an old man and I'm an impatient man. You know, the, the, what I had always heard was, you know, there's like five years with Ron and, and then, you know, Peter Seidler would step in and, I don't know that they would ever confirm that or deny that publicly, but that's always what's been out there. And that was even mentioned to me in spring training by somebody who works for the club. As far as the Pat Murphy stuff, you know, I give Murph so much credit. I I mean, I do because he didn't know me from a hill of beans and he gets thrown into this weekly interview and it was a terrible decision for him to be promoted to that gig. And, you know, Murph was as honest as he could be on the radio. You know, I thought he was really honest in that final one. You know, we basically said our goodbyes to one another on the radio, even though it hadn't become official. You know, Murph was just trying to win the team over. You know, Murph, Murph was saying the things that he felt like he needed to say to try to win the team over. And, And it didn't work. You know, it just didn't work. I don't, I don't think he and Matt Kemp ever, ever, were on the same page. I don't think it worked with some of the other veterans. I don't think it worked with the coaches, frankly. I think that there were all sorts of issues on the coaching staff. Well, he he guys, already said that in that interview. Yeah. Um, the coaches, I, you know, I was told that he really wanted to shuffle the deck and wanted to put different coaches in different positions that he didn't trust some of the coaches that he had coaches who were, who were undermining him, who were bad mouthing him as the games were ongoing. You know, he wanted to make sure that certain coaches were closer to him so that he wasn't being undermined during the game. You know, I mean, it was just it was a terrible decision. I don't know what in the world anybody was thinking with that last year. I, I and if it's their prerogative to fire Bud Black, so be it. You know, I know I have a reputation for being a, a buddy Homer. That's fine. But make that decision before the season starts. You can't take a guy who's never been on the inside of a major league clubhouse and just give him the job 60 something games in they were so disorganized like they got pissed at buddy fired him after the dodger game didn't know what the heck they were doing were they going to give doc the job or are they going to give Cots a job like okay where's pat murph unfortunately our recording cut off right here uh we missed the last three to four maybe five minutes of darren but uh just to fill you in, we had a segment with uh, talking about Jabari Blash, and my question was if Darren having Blash on twice so far as a guest was a result of my efforts and Padres Twitter's efforts to start the Blash Wagon movement, and uh, basically Darren said Blash is a super nice guy. It's a team that has nothing really to root for. The players on the team, you know, the big names, they're not that enticing to the average fan to to really get behind and when you have a player with blash's skill sets his attitude his personality his body um he's someone that you can really get behind and i think that's something that you know i as padres jagoff is really 
supported and written about. So it was good to hear that validation. And, um, you know, I, I basically said that um, I started the movement in hopes that he became such a cult figure that it would be impossible to cut him. And uh, I thanked Darren for his efforts because he's so far with his help, you know, Blash has made the 25-man uh, roster. Uh, when he is actually in the lineup, even Padres team employees highlight the fact that it is a Blash-filled lineup. So um, we'll keep pushing, keep pushing the movement. And, uh, uh, you know, we wrapped up the podcast at that point. Thank Darren. And uh, that was it. So I hope uh, you enjoyed it and uh, hope you enjoy this marvelous uh, wrap-up.